0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Today on Conversations, my guest is Josh Cohen, recorded at Adelaide Writers Week. Josh is a practising psychoanalyst in London where he's also a professor of literature. And in his writing, he brings together these two disciplines, these two ways of understanding what it is to be human, really. His latest book is called Losers. What it is to be a loser and why loser is felt to be such a cutting insult, is something Josh was inspired to explore during the presidency of Donald Trump. Remember how Trump was constantly declaring himself the world's greatest winner, promising that his followers would win so much they'd be sick of winning, and that even when he lost the 2020 election, Trump claimed he was still a winner. He'd won. Well... Josh thinks that our humanity lies in exactly the opposite experience, in losing and in having the humility to accept loss. Now, just before you meet Josh, if you've been to Adelaide Writers Week, you'll know that it's held under the trees in the Pioneer Women's Memorial Garden. It's a lovely spot, but on the day that I spoke with Josh... Ed Sheeran was doing the sound check for his concert at the Adelaide Oval just across the road. This is the special joy of um, outdoor recordings. So at the top of our conversation, you'll hear a bit of Ed Sheeran sound checking, but he eventually gives up and leaves Josh and myself in peace.
0: Thank you, thank you. What is going on?
1: Maybe we could do a dance instead, Josh. interpretive a... dance, I thought. <laughs>
0: interpretive be dance. Yeah. We'll, we'll, yeah. We'll, it's an option. Sure.
1: We'll keep that if this just continues. Let's start instead with one of your favourite losers and mine, Charlie Brown, the anti-hero of the Peanuts Comets. When did you first come to admire this, perhaps the greatest of all losers?
0: Thanks. And, and can I say it's really wonderful to be here and I, I'm wondering if I need to make any kind of reparation now that you've called (laughs) the entire audience a bunch of losers. Uh, But anyway, you'll hopefully know... If you don't know already, you'll, you'll certainly know by the end of the hour just how much of a compliment that is. And the compliment, in a way, begins from Charlie Brown, because Charlie Brown is a figure who is indissociably linked to losing and whom, at the same time, everybody loves... And this is actually something I find fascinating about losers in culture generally, that we are really frightened of the loser in us and we disavow everybody else as a loser when we want to dissociate ourselves from them. And yet there's something in us that wants to outsource the loser identity, the loser impulse to popular culture. Popular culture is full of not just losers, but beloved losers. With Charlie Brown, you think of Lebowski, you think of Homer Simpson's another kind of loser. You know, we we are constantly identifying outlawed impulses to be low, to be useless, to be redundant, and even to be disliked. Um, I mean, a more complicated example would be the Larry David of of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Somebody is really trying to turn me into into the loser of the uh, the festival. Tell
1: me when you first read Charlie Brown. How old were you? I
0: I was five when I first read Charlie Brown. And actually, in a way, it was a gesture of reparation to having felt a bit like a loser. Because um, I'd been left... I mean, happily enough, left with my grandparents while my parents went on this weird... Sort of cruise, I think, to reanimate their marriage on on the Queen Elizabeth II, and they 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 ended up in New York, and they brought home this this big bumper collection of Charlie Brown cartoons, which I immediately took to my room in a kind of reproachful way because I was I was angry about having been left, and I just turned to to the cartoon, and there was something transformative about the moment. Immediately, I think it was the first time that I had read something that showed myself to me. It was, a, it was one of the Doctor is in cartoons, one of the psychiatric help cartoons, and Charlie Brown is basically telling Lucy that he has no idea who he is, that as far as he's concerned, he doesn't have a personality, he doesn't have any sense of self. And she said, uh, yeah, by the time a, a kid is five, his character should be pretty well established. And he says, but I'm more than five. And he says, yes, she says, yes, you are, aren't you? Well, too bad, kid, that's the way it goes. <laughs> Tough love from Lucy always yeah. in Peanuts. Yeah.
1: How does he cope with his losing, with his status as a loser? What sort of emotional reaction does Charlie Brown manifest well, to the pre-
0: that? The, the, the predominant one is of a kind of gentle despondency, right? He moves through the world. I mean, there's something tragic about how early he has reconciled himself to a kind of life of resignation and disappointment. Um, And he moves through the world of his peers, already aware that what he's going to receive back is not going to be particularly loving or affirmative, but it's as though it's baked into his responses. And there's something both lovely and terrible about the way that he's uh, reconciled himself to uh, disappointment from the very, big, you know, from the very earliest stages of his life. He's not really expecting to get much back from his interlocutors. Now there is the odd exception where we see that he has a capacity to exercise his rage, um, particularly. I mean, there's the football episodes, right? Come and kick the football, Charlie Brown. And there's always some reason why she's had to pull away the ball at the last minute. But when he flies, sort of, there's this, there's this curve that is, that is patterned by the, the word, oh! And, and you really feel that that is an existential scream upward <laughs> into the void. And the, the other one uh, is the kite eating tree. The, the tree eats his kite. And, and they, I mean, the, the strip rather brilliantly personifies the tree. It gives the tree a mouth and teeth, and the tree chomps the kite up. And actually, when I read that as a kid, I, I didn't realize that in a way what he was doing was psychological realism. He was trying to show that for Charlie Brown, he has a mouth. I thought he was doing magic realism. I thought this was a tree with a mouth, um, which, which really terrified me. But it didn't terrify Charlie Brown. He goes into, you know, he, he, has a, he really has it out with his tree. He's like Job with God. <laughs> you know, he, he screams at the tree and he really lets out all the, all the sort of accumulated hatred and resentment that, that, that he's had to suppress everywhere else in his life. And so I think in, in a strange kind of way, this malevolent, inanimate object does him a favour gives him something that he can't... It gives him an outlet that he can't have elsewhere.
1: And he gives every reader, whether they're 5 or 55, that great liberation of hearing that, ah, yeah. primordially against yeah. the, the great existential nothingness. Thank yeah. you, Charlie Brown. When was it, as an adult, that you started to appreciate the, the depths of meaning there in
0: those Peanuts cartoons? Oh, I mean, it's followed me through my life. You know, he's... he's always been really a, a kind of formative literary figure those, those cartoons have been a constant companion I turned back to them um, slightly weirdly it was part of you know it was a big sort of phase of bedtime reading with my kids it is odd to read sort of comic strips with your kids but they used to love it because in a way you, you, you know there were these silent frames where you just got a look between say Snoopy and Charlie Brown, that was so replete with 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 subtle gradations of meaning and communication that you could kind of use them to say, "Well, what actually are they saying to each other there um, and just the the more I involve myself with that strip, the more I feel like it, it's one of the most interesting and and sort of intricate, long-term portrayals of of losing in in literary history.
1: Well, in your own professional life, as you you say, you'll kind of more or also embrace the Lucy Van Pelt character in terms of your work as a psychoanalyst. When people come to see you in the in the therapy room, Josh, they're not coming because they feel like winners most of the time. They come with loss, with pain. In the context of psychoanalysis, what do you ask people to do with that loss?
0: It's such an interesting question because you're absolutely right. They don't come as winners, but actually they haven't gone through the psychic passage that Charlie Brown has gone through. They haven't reconciled themselves to loss. They haven't actually... I mean, for better and worse, they haven't sort of embraced their inner loser. Now they don't have to consign themselves to a life of permanent disappointment, which is not necessarily an outcome that you want for them. On the other hand, it means that instead of saying, how do I learn to lean into and live with the experience of loss, they're saying, I think in the first instance, a lot of the time, I feel like I've lost or i am losing, and is there something that you can do for me to take the edge off that? One interesting reference here. I don't know, did anyone um, listen to that great podcast, The Shrink Next Door? It was turned into um, a, a series on Apple TV with Will Farrell and, and Paul Rudd. It's an extraordinary story. It was about a Jewish uh, inheritor of a, of a textiles firm who is sent by his rabbi to a psychiatrist therapist. And the guy has basically inherited a family business. Marty Markovitz, his name is. And he is just chronically low on confidence, on self-understanding. And so he turns to this therapist who says to him, I'm going to take care of everything. Which is, of course, exactly the thing that you don't say as a therapist. But and this exactly
1: guy, what every, every patient wants the therapist yes, to say. Yes, exa- and
0: that's it. <laughs> yeah. Right, so he preys on the vulnerability because the thing that, they, that, that anybody wants to be told, the thing I wanted to be told when I went for help was you don't have to be a loser. You don't have to go through this very sort of painful passage through loss. We can, we can circumvent it. We can find a way around it just stick with me, I will take care of everything. So that's the thing that I can't say, even though I think it's probably the one thing people would ask me to say. Um, and often, you know, there's this doorknob moment when people leave at the end of a consultation, they say something really poignant like, do you think it's gonna be okay? And, and that sort of, you know, that suspension with a note of, of impending loss and fear that this is going to be really difficult.
1: Okay, so if you can't offer to, to make it all better, to take care of everything, what can you offer someone who comes to you feeling in that depth of loss?
0: I think what you offer is a different relationship to the experience of losing. Instead of saying, look, losing is a really terrible and painful experience, that i'm afraid you're just going to have to go through and i'll be here with you but you know i can't take away the pain that kind of grim um fatalism there's there's a different kind of way through which is to say can you actually relate to loss in a way that's curious that's interested in what's happening to you because the thing is we we you know in the era of positive thinking we we spread this gospel that the only feelings worth having are good positive and affirmative feelings and that bad feelings are bad for you in all kinds of ways they compromise your success they compromise your relationships they compromise your go-ahead sense of self Um, they will turn you into a loser if you let yourself abide with them. So what you have to do is eject them, that you have to turn them into a kind of internal enemy that you'll have no truck with. Um, It's it's really painful because it turns your whole inner life, really, or so much of your inner life into something that you have to reject or distance yourself from so if you can instead say look why not get closer to these feelings not be swallowed up by them in such a way that you feel that you are their prisoner and and their victim but instead somebody who can enter into a kind of dialogue with them who can say there is something really valuable about feeling sad, about feeling rageful, about feeling disappointed, about feeling envious, even about feeling, say, irritable or spiky. All of these bad feelings that make us feel that we're losing the game of life are actually really important dimensions of the game of life. They, they sort of, you know, even when we encounter them in, in other people, We may not necessarily like them in a straightforward sense, but I think they enrich relationships. No-one would ever want to be in a deep, intimate relationship that had had no edge to it. Mm. There are
1: many flavours of loss that a human experiences over the course of a lifetime, depending on the experiences we find ourselves in, but there's one loss that we all face, none of us can escape, Is that beneath all the other losses? Are all the other losses variations of this fear of death that we're all heading, hurtling
0: towards? You know, it's really interesting, this one, partly because I'm not completely sure about it. Um, Freud was really down on the idea that fear of death was the conditioning fear. He, he, in a way, took a a characteristically rationalist line on it. He said, look, phenomenologically, no-one can experience death. No one knows what it is. So how could it really be the source of our greatest terrors? Instead, he felt that really our worst terror was humiliation. To to sort of be visibly shown to be bad morally or to, to, to be failing in some fundamental dimension of yourself. That's really the worst thing that can happen to you, to feel exposed to to the shaming gaze of others. And in a way, you could reconcile the two views by saying that there's something about mortality that is a bit shaming. There's something about the fact that we strive and fight our way through this life in the knowledge that someday it's all going to end and you could say become irrelevant. Of course, it, for, for all kinds of reasons, hopefully, it isn't irrelevant. But the, the fact that we are born into the world kind of primed to fight a losing battle, um, there is something humiliating about that that sort of lurks beneath... It's a kind of murmur lurking beneath the surface of life. Again, is that something to be very frightened of and to reject is it a knowledge you just fend off or again is it something that makes life more interesting
1: there's a, a great line by the israeli writer edgar Carrett, who talks about um life winning at life is like you've got the best sweet the most gorgeous sweet on the titanic <laughs> you know, like, like however, thing, however well things go for
0: you yeah.
1: you're all ending on the bottom yeah. of the ocean
0: yeah i love that guy
1: in terms of um, in terms of fear of death or fear of mortality, there is a figure who looms over this essay Josh, Donald Trump. And one of the most telling incidences, one of the strangest, I think, of his presidency, was when he refused to visit a war grave in um, in France, a war cemetery for American Marines. What reason did he give, and how, as a psychoanalyst, do you make sense of that?
0: Just just to preface this, yesterday I did a session with my namesake, the novelist uh, Joshua Cohen, and I think John Fain, who was doing the interview, asked, you know, kind of about a comparison between Boris Johnson and Donald Trump, and I think he asked who I would prefer to analyse, and I just rejected the... You know, turned down the opportunity. Um, But I was thinking about it this morning, and Donald Trump, of course on the surface of it, seems a much more kind of odious person to have to encounter personally. Um, But that's partly to do with something non-calculative, almost guileless about him. Because he's so completely externalised, because he doesn't seem to have an unconscious, he just spills his unconscious into public life. You know, he says... For example, you know, if she weren't my daughter, I'd be dating her. Now, the thing is that this kind of, you know, incestuous impulse belongs to the outer edge of the id, but not for Trump, right? For, for Trump, it's just something you say, as casually if you're, you're asking for a cup of tea. And, and so it does raise a really interesting question. What do you do with somebody... Who you don't have to draw his unconscious out of him because it's already on display. So it's really like an amazing everybody. scientific
1: opportunity it, for it, it psychoanalysts because is. here
0: is the unconscious. Yes. Here is the id. To... Baldly there. And, and one thing that psychoanalysts are always told, or tra- trainee analysts are always told, is you have to understand the unconscious is never barely there. That's why, why a psychoanalyst takes so, analysis takes so long. It takes years <laughs> because to really draw somebody's unconscious out, you have to make allow them to, to turn it into an ally and to be curious about it. And people are very frightened of their unconscious Well,
1: They don't want to share those terrible, humiliating right. desires. Right,
0: right. Here is your one-man contradiction <laughs> of that entire tradition, <laughs> that entire line of thinking. So there's something about that guileless relationship to the unconscious next to Boris's sort of hideously calculative relationship to, to, to his his nastiness and venality that makes me feel that, paradoxically, there's something about Trump's invulnerability, his ability to sort of fend off every possibility of of sort of being touched or or permeated in some way. If he wasn't so odious and so dangerous politically, I would find it poignant, to be honest. what is poignant about it? Well, you get a taste of it in, in the viciousness of that response, right? It, it is a vicious response to say that as a visiting dis- dignitary, you don't want to go to uh, a cemetery full of your own, your own fallen soldiers because it's full of losers.
1: And he said that was what he said, it's full of That's losers. He,
0: it's full of losers. That, that is a properly sourced quotation. Um... You know, it, it, it wasn't something that was implied or that has been paraphrased. Um, now, in a way, wh- wh- what does he mean? You know, he, he seems to mean, as he meant about John McCain, you know, that these were people who somehow <laughs> sort of fell into the line of fire. What idiots, you know. Um, any soldier knows you're not supposed to get yourself killed. Uh, you know, which is, <laughs> of course, why he... Um, managed to, to uh, exempt himself from from a serious quarter. fallen yeah. archers issue yeah. well I mean you know in a way he was consistent with his own advice right he, he wasn't gonna get in get get into the line of fire you know he, he'd, he'd managed not to be a loser at the outset hmm.
1: his eagerness to use that term loser uh, to everyone from a, a dead soldier to a journalist he doesn't like to yeah. a disabled person to a political opponent it's got such a schoolyard ring about it yeah. and that's sort of what makes it so hard to counter because it's not using the normal conditions of of logical argument there's no. something much deeper about that put down like how how do you understand his use of loser uh, is such a common as uh, such I, a
0: common term i think really you know if you look at his business books it's very clear that he carries over the time on a techniques of the bully into the business first of of business and then of politics. Um, What you always make the mistake of doing with any bully is arguing back, is sort of trying to take him on whatever claim he tries to throw at you and to sort of dispute whatever claim he's making about you. I am not a loser. Right, I'm not a loser, (laughs) right? Uh, I mean, the example I I give in the book, which comes from Masha Gessen, is the kid who takes your hat. And he says, this is my hat. And the the bullied kid says, no, it's not. It's my hat. And of course, that just feeds and really is is exactly what the, the bully has solicited. Because at that point, what he can do is say you've fallen into the trap of believing that this is about disputed ownership that could be resolved by a discussion of the provenance of the hat. But actually, it has absolutely nothing to do with that. This is about my capacity to remake the world as I see fit. So if I make a world in which this hat is my hat, then it's my hat. Because I don't make the world out of or in response to the existence of material facts that there's it's too much hard work to do that i would rather make a world out of the airy facts of the alternative facts of the words that i speak you know the the words i speak make reality and then of course you can remake it and you can bend it and you can break it and you can reorganize it as you will
1: Podcast, broadcast, this is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. I suppose then it wasn't surprising that someone who kept proclaiming that there would be a winner, they were the greatest winner, they would always win, even when, objectively, they hadn't won,
0: Yeah, that
1: is attractive to people who feel fragile, who feel like they're not on the winning side of the economy or gender theory or history. I mean, yeah. how do how yeah. you understand the appeal to people who feel like they might actually be losers in this moment?
0: I, I think that... It's very profound, and he's always been two steps ahead of us on this point. I think that, you know, I was watching CNN with everybody else the night of January the 6th, and maybe a little shamefully that there was a kind of glee in the face of all that violence and chaos of feeling, Okay, well, this really is the end. I mean, no-one survives this. Particularly his kind of, you know wheedling immediate apologetic response. But of course he worked out that what he then needed to do instead of apologizing was to double down, to deny that what everybody had seen happen had actually happened, and to keep pursuing the claim of the stolen election and to turn the the whole dimension of factuality into the domain of pointy-headed losers only losers really worry about facts the election was stolen not because you can count the votes and see the other guy got more it was stolen because i say it was stolen and in a way there was a kind of parody of counterclaims. When um, Kayleigh McKenney, his press secretary, came on TV, she would be holding these sheaves of evidence of the stolen election, but pretty brazenly, when she waved them back, you could see that there was nothing on these pages it didn't matter that, that that the in a way she, she wasn't really saying there's counter evidence here, she was saying I'm just going to parody the notion of counter evidence I'm going to parody the notion that there's a set of facts that you could set against the, the, your set of facts there, there is a kind of contempt that I think absolutely energises the base because for the base, facts in a way is what technocratic bullies have been bullying them with Mm -hmm. for decades. What's Freud's notion of splitting,
1: Josh, and how is that useful in understanding what's going
0: on here? Yeah, yeah. Um, This is really influential, and I would say it's also one of those notions, although we don't necessarily use the word splitting, it's one of those notions that I think has really found its way into everyday popular psychology, So splitting is a way of living with yourself and the world. It's saying um, there are certain things about myself or about the world around me, the world I associate myself with, that I don't like. And so what I'm going to do is split them off. And everything that I don't like belongs to you. It belongs to, say, the venal marauding migrant. It belongs to the losers of the world. Uh, It belongs to Antifa. It belongs to the radical left Dems. It belongs to the Satanist pedophiles um, and deep state officials. All those enemies that are trying to destroy the idyll of a kind of manicured lawn, suburban, straight, white, male America. I I mean, I think that that basically is the fantasized idyll that Trump was constantly sort of wanting to realize in the minds of his constituency, the possibility of restoring. That's what Make America Great, I think, means. And I think it's also what a lot of strongman programs, you know, th- there are so many variations on that, that fantasy of a kind of protected space of safety and protection from all those foreign alien forces that we have to teach ourselves to hate because they threaten our way of life. I think something very similar happened with Brexit when Johnson mobilised this this brazen lie about Turkey joining the EU and 600,000 Turkish migrants flooding the country. This was another classic instance of the political activation of splitting, right? Sort of everything... Dangerous. everything that you don't want to have to endure in yourself, you can project out there and, and sort of... You know, that, that's why I think in both Trump and Brexit, the motif of the wall or the border is so powerful because the wall of the, and the border is literally the seam of the split where on one side you live, on this side you live with everything that you would like for yourself and everything else is just thrown over the wall.
1: So you've given us this kind of powerful overview or invitation to rethink this category of winner and loser and and think if we, rather than looking from the position of winner down at the loser, if we inhabit the space of loser, then that dichotomy doesn't have the same kind of power that we might have assumed that it would... What you suggest is that the counter value to that kind of binary way of looking at ourselves and the world is the value of humility, which isn't a very sexy value. Explain to us why humility is is what you see as such a a
0: powerful counter. I am completely fascinated by humility and that's why I wanted to explore it. It's also something that I'm really wary of and, and, and that's really my way into thinking about humility because... It's a, it's a dangerous word. It's a dangerous word literally because the moment you claim it, you also erase your claim to it. The great example is Uriah Heap in Dickens' David Copperfield, who is this wheedling, self-interested, calculating clerk, legal clerk, who uses the word I'm so humble as a screen for all his you know, dastardly machinations. Um, You know, the the claim of humility is so often the refuge of scoundrels. Um, And claimed humility, well, there's no more obnoxious form of self-aggrandizement. You know, two years ago, the Oxford Dictionary word of the year was humblebrag. Claimed claimed humility is really cheap. Anybody can say, you know, any sort of CEO who earns a seven-figure salary... Can, can claim how, how humble he is about the family of mailroom workers and cleaners who are all part of the corporate family. It's the cheapest gesture there is. So how do you get to a humility that isn't cheap and gestural and easy? And I think actually Char- we, we can kind of go back to Charlie Brown because you can't be gentle before the world unless you've really felt the impulse to destroy it. So there is a humility which is sort of plucked out of the air and that you just say, I'm very humble and ask people to believe you. And there's a humility which is earned. By
1: the tree eating your kite. Yes, by the tree eating your kite. Yes, the, by the, the, the ball te- not yeah, being kicked. Yeah. The ah. Yeah, humility.
0: exactly. It's all, about, it's all about actually confronting the tree, actually confronting the violence and the... And, you know, all those bad feelings in you. You know, you're right, it's not a straightforward answer. It talks about a very important Franco-Jewish philosopher called Levinas. Levinas, in a way, is a philosopher of humility, but a really interesting philosopher of humility, because instead of encouraging us all to be very humble, whatever that means, he says, look, when you see another person's face, the, the responsibility that you have towards it is so profound and so overwhelming that, in a way, all you can do is surrender to it, but part of what's so overwhelming is that actually you resent it. You hate the other person for imposing the responsibility on you. Why couldn't you just withdraw into the cell of your own pleasure, your own enjoyment and gratification? Why do you have to actually pay attention to the suffering or the appeal or the demand of the other or of many others? It, it, it's, there's, there's something unbearable about it, and all of us know what it is, to want to say, you know, if we see abject suffering in Ukraine or in East Africa on television, either we switch off or we, we sort of gormlessly gaze into the images as though they're interchangeable with Love Island on the other side. Um, because there is something about the demand that is just intolerable. Now, I think the, the humble brag is a way of leapfrogging, that moment of resentment and in a way of violence towards the demands that other people make on us. It's a, it's a cheap way of continuing to be able to enjoy ourselves while paying lip service to some notion of humility that actually costs you nothing. If you have to say, I would much rather just watch TV, you know, order a takeaway and Ignore the suffering of others. That that is the necessary passage, I think, to humility, to to actually know that it's not a stance, it's not a it's not a position you can take up, but it's it's a, a it's a kind of journey that you have to make through your own resentments and bad feelings and violence.
1: So an awareness of your own resistance to yeah. feel empathy or yeah. compassion.
0: Yeah. And, and, and that, I think, constant sort of living with your own resistance to, to, your, to your compassion, I, I think that that engenders a different kind of humility because you're never in a position where you can sort of sit from some Olympian height and, and lord it over others because, after all, you're so much better.
1: Can you, you share the joke that you heard growing up josh that is a kind of wonderful example of the humble brag when it comes to um the jewish day of atonement right would
0: it be okay if i read it yeah um because uh, you know the thing with trying to recite jokes by heart is that you always risk getting it wrong you know saying the punchline about 10 seconds before it actually it, comes is out is that your so, own
1: humble brag that you're that, uh,
0: <laughs> yeah I, I i guess it is oh, all, right. all right all right um on the eve of the Day of Atonement, the rabbi walks into his empty synagogue and ascends the bimah, or central platform. Overtaken by fear and trembling at the prospect of soon having to count for his soul before God, he drops to his knees, raises his arms and visage to heaven, and cries out, My God, I am nothing, I am nothing. At this very moment, the cantor walks in, overwhelmed by the rabbi's display of spontaneous devotion, he follows him to the bimah, drops down behind him, and bellows in his resounding basso profundo, my God, I, I am nothing, I am nothing. Unbeknownst to both men, the beadle has been concealed at the back, witnessing their abjections before the Holy One. Unable to contain his emotion a moment longer, he rushes to the bimmer, falls prostrate behind the canter, and in his grating, high-pitched squeal declares, My God! I! I am nothing! I am nothing! (laughs) At which point the rabbi raises his eyebrow and, leaning into the canter with a sneer and a thumb, pointed at the beetle, grunts, Huh! Look who thinks he's nothing. (laughs) I think that
1: that is a a good place to segue into uh, another strand of writing that you look at in this essay, which is the kind of rich tradition of writing about losers in German literature. And the particular kind of funny, bleak losers that exist in German literature Why do you think the Germans have excelled in this domain? Before we look at a few of them in in more detail, what is it about the German language or the German sensibility which has given us so many funny, capital L losers, do you think?
0: I think that men of... And because these are three guys, and I think it's important that they're three guys um, because they're men of intense, if you like, unmasculine sensitivity. Um, Men with a sort of deeply compromised relationship to their own manhood, who really doubt their own worthiness of of manhood. And they they live in a culture which, in one way or another, historically, is traumatised by the demands of manhood in the 20th century, that lives through two belligerent world wars, that is brought up in an atmosphere of intense demands and expectations about what it means to be a man and indeed what it means to be a winner to come out on top you know you take the example of Kafka and the famous letter to his father and you can see that what he's grappling with is some sense of the father is a Trump the father is somebody who just explain this letter Josh this is a a letter that Kafka wrote and, and never sent to his father from a sanatorium in in 1929 that is now known as the letter to his father. And in it, he sets down this agonized uh, emotional relationship with this man whom he, in one way, proclaims the winner in their ongoing battle. It's, It's, in a way, a letter of surrender. This man is a kind of paragon of dominant masculinity. He's massive, he's vulgar, he's aggressive, he's unkind. He's everything that puts Kafka in the shade. And this is, in a way, the model of manhood that Kafka has to live up to and at the same time is so painfully conscious from the very beginning that he's never going to live up to. You know, he, he identifies himself with his mother's family, which is lacking in self-certainty which is uh, kind of floats in a, in a in an ether of self-doubt and he just doesn't have this kind of grasping energy that the kafkas have he's he, he is a kafka who says he's not really a kafka and what happens in the course of the letter is that you see that this surrender is a very subtle and surreptitious kind of triumph as well that when he tells his father, I can't, I can't best you in argument, in force, in dominance. He's actually besting him. It's almost as though he's in two places at once. One is sort of abjectly dropping to his knees before his father. But you almost have a sense of him also standing behind his father pantomimically and kind of gurning at him, you know, um, sticking his tongue out that in describing his dominance, he also describes his absurdity and his sort of emotional stupidity. And so in doing that, he sort of makes space for thinking about what it might be to be a different kind of man, to be somebody who's actually not as, as Hermann Kafka has done, you know screamed in rage every time he's confronted with his own vulnerability or the possibility of losing in the game of business what would what would life be like if instead you you lived with and and interjected your own losing tendency right what kind of person you well you you would be the kind of person who writes this letter which is so interesting and layered and subtle it gives us such a complex mode of selfhood there's a confidence about it actually I mean there's a boldness about this letter but it's not a boldness that has overcome or leapt over vulnerability but one that has actually absorbed vulnerability into itself and and made made of it a strength so there's a strength in being the one who sees and who can
1: describe, and that's yeah. the the space that that Kafka inhabits. And yeah. the Austrian writer Thomas Bernhard was a big fan of of Franz Kafka's, and his novel The Loser, perfect for yeah. for your essay, yeah. Josh. Just give us the synopsis of of
0: that story. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the right translation, but it, it's worth saying that the the, the German title is is uh, Der Untergeier, which, which is something like the one who, literally the one who undergoes, I guess, but, but it's something like the one who suffers. But I think it was right to call it the loser for all kinds of reasons. And so this is a novel that, um, like all of Bernhard, so Bernhard is somebody who I think wrongly is seen as a forbidding writer, as a writer's writer, as somebody that, you know, you go to only if you're sort of very intimate with, the history of, of, of modern literature. I, I, don't, I think nothing could be more wrong. He's actually an incredibly not only accessible but addictive writer. There's something propulsive about these novels which basically take the form of one person ranting. Every novel is one long paragraphless rant.
1: It, Doesn't that it, sound appealing? Yeah, exactly, I was <laughs> going to say. Well, look, look. I mean... He, but he's he, very funny.
0: Yeah, he's very funny. Yeah. And, and you know, he speaks for the ranter in all of us and rants the kinds of resentments that we might feel shy about ranting. Like, this one's useless, the other person is pathetic. There's a kind of outlet for all those bad, envious, um, superior feelings that... Again, we, we, we try to pretend we don't really have. Um, and he's outside of an inn in Middle Austria, and he's at the wake for a friend of his who's just committed suicide, Wertheimer. And the narrator, who, who remains nameless, and Wertheimer, are both ex-concert pianists. They've given up being concert pianists. Why? Because at students at the Salzburg Mozartium they came across and befriended a Canadian student called Glenn Gould. And Glenn Gould sits down at the piano and he plays three bars of the Goldberg Variations and at that moment, the narrator and Wertheimer decide it's time to give up. (laughs) Basically, they've lost the moment. You know, it's not that they're not very proficient, talented pianists, but once you see the pinnacle of musical achievement. Once you see what can be done with Bach, with a piano, anything else you do kind of labors in the, in the shade of, of, of mediocrity. So, so they give up. And in fact, this is you know, the fictive, completely fictive. So we don't want to imagine that, that the real Glenn would have done this, but Glenn labels Wertheimer the loser. So ostensibly, that's the title character is Wertheimer who who kills himself. In a way, the narrator is a loser as well because he's given up. But there's a difference between the way the two of them live with their loss. Wertheimer gives up. And the the suicide, in a way, is a violent gesture because he says once once you discover you're a loser, you just want to erase your tracks from the world. You just want to annihilate yourself. Whereas what the narrator does, at the end of the novel, he puts on a record of Gould playing Goldberg. And the point is that it it sets up two different relations to losing. One is a relationship where you can't live with it, so you annihilate it and eventually you annihilate yourself. And the other is, well, you just inhabit it. And it means that you don't live the stellar sort of olympian height of a life that you might have wanted but you live a life nonetheless and things that you wouldn't necessarily have expected come out and vertheimer has written a book called the loser which is lost but the book that isn't lost is this book called the loser which has somehow emanated from this losing consciousness and given us something that is more than a document of losing Right, Something is one out of it, which is the book we're reading. And it's not, it's not
1: Glenn Gould playing the Goldberg Variations, but it's something differently wonderful in its yes. own way. Yes. Just to bring this all back home, Josh, I want to return to Peanuts. We've talked about Charlie Brown. Where does Snoopy fit? in your constellation of different psychic types, which is now all I'm going to ever look at Peanuts for as a way of... of, Forget Freud, that's where I'm going to go to read
0: my psychoanalytic
1: Uh, theories. What does Snoopy teach us?
0: Well, in a way, I'd want to go back to a previous book I wrote, which was called Not Working, which was about a kind of typology of different ways of being lazy. And one type, one lazy type that I particularly love, probably the one that I'm most identified with, is the daydreamer. And Snoopy is really the exemplary daydreamer. He has a rich inner life because he, he just inhabits these various daydreams. You know, he, he's a lawyer, he's a World War I flying ace. <laughs> Novelist. He is a sort of slightly sleazy um, student, kind of hanging around the, uh, the campus looking for chicks with dark glasses on. <laughs> um, he he inhabits he he kind of weaves in and out of these various personae, and he he shows us the value really I mean Snoopy is the anti-Trump because he shows us the value of leaning completely into an inner life. He has good relationships with everybody around him, but those those relationships are mediated by his daydreams, which he doesn't sort of try and throw off in order to be in a relationship with others. He's always, in a way, inhabiting others through his fantasies of who he is. That, that's why, you know, he enjoys his dog food dinner so much because at some level, he's always in a gourmet restaurant when he's being served something.
1: So if we really embrace our inner Charlie Brown, we may be rewarded with finding our inner Snoopy.
0: I, I had not thought of it about it that way, but yes, <laughs> yes. I... I I have to say, I pretty much stuck with Charlie Brown. Um,
1: Your life's not over yet. Josh no, no, Snoopy exactly is waiting so. for you.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it will never be too late. <laughs> at, the, at the very last minute, it will not be too late. Thank you so much.
1: Josh Cohen was my guest today, and his latest book is simply called Losers. Thanks to all the staff of Adelaide Writers Week and all the sound engineers who despite Ed Sheeran's soundcheck and The Wind in the Trees made that recording possible. And thanks also to the Conversations Powerhouse who make it all possible behind the scenes, executive producer Carmel Rooney and producers this week, Meggie Morris and Tamar Cranswick. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations.
0: Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.